This is a reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Just as Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, so you see those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous will live by faith. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, I can promise to answer probably none of those questions. <laughs> um, last time Matt said when I were dropping him home, I was very courageous to tackle Galatians for a, uh, an epistle to focus on, um, and it's certainly extremely challenging even for me spending all the time I'm, I'm doing to, to get my head around some of these things but I'll have a go so this is um, episode four I think in, in our journey and um, <clears throat> if you hear last time uh, you remember that Paul has so far in his response to this problem that he's struggling with in the churches that um, he had planted and had left behind. He so far used his own experiences, uh, his Damascus Road event, his uh, revelation of the gospel to him, his apostolic commissioning and appointment, his engagement with what I've been calling the big three in Jerusalem, uh, and then last, last time his confrontation with Peter in Antioch. So these are all autobiographical reflections that Paul uh, brings up. He's used these to defend his understanding of the gospel against what he determines as the perversion of the gospel that's been uh, peddled in Galatia by these conservative Jewish Christian visitors from Jerusalem who were dogging Paul's path, following him around and trying to undo uh, the work that he had, he had, um, he had done with these Gentile communities. <clears throat> and he ends his autobiographical defence 
at the end of chapter two, in very personal, strikingly personal terms, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not, do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Then, at the point that we've got up to in today's tonight's reading, Paul shifts his attention to sort of three further pieces of evidence to try and support or buttress uh, his case, his defence of his version of the gospel. He points in the first four or five verses to the evidence of the work of the Spirit in the Galatians' own experience. Then in 6 to 9, he points to the witness of Scripture and especially the experience of Abraham and the promise that was given to Abraham. And then thirdly, he warns them against what I'm going to call the dark side of striving to live under the law to the neglect of what he thinks Christ has done to deal with this problem uh, once and for all on everybody else's behalf. So the, those three sections, I'm just going to go through them. And as Margaret said, at the end of the, uh, of the liturgy, I've put the headings there. So um, if you forget sort of where we're up to, you can maybe just um, look at that. As always, and this is a real struggle in this particular series, uh, tonight's text is only one snippet of a much longer and more complex argument, which in this case runs for the next two chapters. And I don't think we're going to way through those next two chapters in the coming weeks. I think I'm going to skip over quite a bit um, after tonight. Uh, but it is just part of a, of a... It's very hard to sort of make a decision what part of the text we're going to focus on because it just is one unfolding argument. But this one is a unit because he starts with the Spirit and he ends with the Spirit. And so I've divided it into th these three sections. <clears throat> so after recounting his very stern rebuke of Peter in Antioch, Paul now issues an equally stern rebuke of the Galatians for succumbing to the same sorts of doubts and fears that he thought had driven Peter's actions in Antioch. He chides them in particular for failing to keep in focus the central fact of the gospel which is the shameful public crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. Very striking language. It, it seems that when Paul preached the gospel to them in the first place, he must have emphasised Jesus' crucifixion in such vivid, realistic terms that the Galatians could almost visualise themselves as being part of the audience. It was almost as though they saw it uh, in the way that Paul had emphasised and dramatised this event. So he says that before your eyes he was publicly exhibited. It was almost as though they were there. But now they've fallen under the spell of these false teachers who were shifting their attention from what Christ had done on the cross to something more that they needed to do in order to belong. And for Paul, this was a disastrous mistake. 
it was a diminishing or a belittling of the enormity of the cross and all that that entailed and a relapsing into kind of worldly or human standards of worth. So the close of Galatians in chapter 6, Paul speaks of his own personal determination to ground his identity and his value system and his confidence entirely in the cross. He writes, May I never boast of anything. May I never find any source of pride and, and, and assurance in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, to which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And he clearly expected the same of the Galatians. That was the sort of stance that he was encouraging them to have as well. And to hammer that point home, he fires a series of staccato-like rhetorical questions at them, which was to encourage them to reflect on their own previous experience of the gospel's transforming power in their lives. So he writes, Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or by your believing in what you heard? I've always found this an incredibly striking uh, passage, paragraph, because Paul is essentially saying, the proof of my law-free gospel is found in the putting of your own lives. Don't just be swayed by the logic of these visitors' arguments. Look instead at the empirical evidence to the contrary in your own lived experience, both individually and corporately. Your initial conversion entailed receiving the Spirit. This is a standard way in the New Testament of talking about when people turn to, to Christ in first place, they receive the Spirit. It wasn't just saying the sinner's prayer or changing their opinion. They received the Spirit. And it clearly must have been a life-changing event that they could easily recall that he would appeal to it in this way. How did that occur? Did that come from performing the works of the law or did it come by trusting in what you heard? And that wasn't just a one-off event. God is continuing to supply you with, as the present continuous there, God is continuing to supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you. Why is that happening? Is that on the basis of the works of the law? Or is it solely because that you trusted in the gospel you heard? So then... Having begun a life that clearly pulsates with God's Spirit, are you seriously intending to switch teams and now rely on the flesh and now rely on the standards of the old age? I mean, surely that will be a downright foolish thing to do, you foolish Galatians. So his argument, I think, is really compelling but it only works on the assumption that the Galatians really did know the Spirit's presence and power in a palpable, 
experiential way. And I guess the challenge for us <coughs> is whether we can identify with that kind of experience of the Spirit's presence in our lives or in our community with the same clarity and the same conviction that Paul uh, was able to identify it in the experience of the Galatians. So what was their experience of the Spirit actually like? What did it actually mean for them to have the Spirit's activity amongst them? And, and you know, as the kids would say, in real life, what actually did it mean in, in day-to-day experience? So I had a glance through the rest of the epistle, and there are a number of, there are a number of hints, I think, as to what this experience of the Spirit that Paul is sort of basing his argument on at this stage, what it was actually like. I mean, first and foremost, it was an experience of freedom. Freedom from fear, freedom from oppression, freedom from servitude, to idolatry. So, in chapter 4, a few verses on, he said, to the, he reminds them, to the Galatians, he said, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved again? Or beginning of chapter 5, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, for for Paul, uh, where the spirit is, there is freedom. The spirit is the spirit. I mean, it's like Jesus reading out uh, of uh, Isaiah in in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim freedom to the oppressed. So the experience of the Spirit for the Galatians was fundamentally an experience of freedom. It was also an experience of, or an awareness of, an intimacy with God, a sense of belonging to God, of being cared for by God, that must have been a radically different kind of religious experience than they had before. So he says, formerly you did not know God, now however that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God. So the sense that the Spirit brought a sense of knowledge of God. And later in chapter 4, and because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. So it's an experience of, of, of relatedness to God that the Spirit brought. It was also an experience of, I guess, supernatural power and spiritual gifting. Does not God continue to supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you? Because of your believing in what you heard? And such demonstrations of power seem to have regularly accompanied Paul's preaching. At the end of Romans, uh, which is clearly Paul's most intellectually demanding epistle, it's even harder than Galatians, because it's a bit more nuanced than Romans. Um, At the end of Galatians, when Paul speaks about his own ministry, chapter 15, he said, 
I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to win obedience from the Gentiles by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, and by the power of the Spirit of God. So the life in the Spirit was an experience of power. It was also an experience of hope and of perseverance. Hope for the completion of this new creation that was just beginning to have an impact on their lives. Again, in chapter 5 and 6, For through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, which presumably means hope for the completion of the righteousness that we've begun to experience here and now. For if it's so to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So let us not grow weary in doing what is right, for we will reap at harvest time if we do not give up. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything but a new creation is everything. So the Spirit nurtured the sense of hope for the new creation that they were uh, being inducted into, uh, that that would be completed. But perhaps most of all, life in the Spirit was an experience of progressive moral and spiritual transformation moral and spiritual transformation, which Paul is adamant to um, make clear an experience that was not dependent on law-keeping. This is not because you're keeping the law. So these are well-known texts, chapter 5. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. If you live by the Spirit, it is also be guided by the Spirit. So, for the Galatians, I guess... I guess what Paul is, 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 is wanting them to, to recognise is that the contrast between their pagan past and their current life in Christ is stark and dramatic. And this is due entirely to the work of the Holy Spirit. And the difference that the Spirit makes in their lives is proof positive that the truth of the Gospel Paul's phrase, the truth of the gospel is not just a contestable set of ideas about salvation or the covenant or Israel. It's not a set of theoretical ideas, but it's a story of God's dramatic counterintuitive intervention into the world to rescue humanity from its bondage to evil and to restore and renew creation. And the crucial question he asks the Galatians is, how did you come to participate in that dramatic intervention to save the world? Was it because you performed the works of the law? Or was it because you simply believed that the story is true? So he's moved from his own experience to casting the, the, the spotlight on their experience and asking them to reflect on how they understand 
the experience of transformation that, that they had enjoyed. To reinforce that lesson, he then appeals to the evidence of Scripture and to the experience of Abraham in the biblical story. Now, in Jewish tradition, uh, the two most important figures in salvation history were Abraham, who was the patriarch from which Israel has sprung, and Moses, who was the redeemer of Israel from servitude in Egypt and the one to whom the Torah had been given. So these are the two great forefathers of the Jewish people. And both these figures, these heroic figures, play a big role in Paul's appeal to Scripture, especially in Romans and in Galatians. But when Paul appeals to them, he prioritizes the significance of Abraham and he problematizes the significance of Moses. Quite hard to say those words, but he prioritizes the story of Abraham and he problematizes the story of Moses. Doesn't, he doesn't deny the importance of Moses, but he sees aspects that are really problematic about the mosaic part of the story. So for Paul, Abraham was such an important figure because he saw him as the forefather, not just of Israel or of Messianic believing Israel, but also of the Gentile Christian community. I mean, Paul argues this in quite some detail in Romans 4 to make the point that Abraham is actually the forefather of us all. God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be, quote, the father, uh, all the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. Promised to Abraham in, in, in Genesis 12. All the nations of the earth would be blessed in him. Of course, the word for nations is exactly the same as the word for Gentiles, because Gentiles just means nations. So all the Gentiles of the earth will be blessed in him. That promise, Paul believes, is now being fulfilled through the Gentile mission, drawing Gentiles into the Messianic community where both Jewish believers and Gentile believers could appeal to the same tupuna, the same ancestor. We can both take our identity from the same figure. This is the way Paul um, sets the, 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 the narrative up. Now, Paul's conservative opponents no doubt agreed that the response of the Gentiles to the gospel was indeed the fulfilment of the covenant with Abraham. They agreed that this was the beginning of the ingathering of the nations, long prophesied uh, in the Old Testament. But for them, the most important question to ask and to answer is, how are the Gentiles to be included and be gathered into the family of Abraham? And for them, the answer to that question is crystal clear in Scripture. Genesis 17. God said to Abraham, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant with you, and your offspring after you shall keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. 
So my covenant shall be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the question, how do people join the covenant community? Answer, read your Bible. It's crystal clear. And no wonder the Galatians were getting unnerved by this, if this has been pointing out to them. But Paul, in a sense, says to them, hang on a minute, <clears throat> we need to rewind the movie about Abraham just back a few scenes further. Don't start in Genesis 17, just go back a bit to get the context. Because for Paul, it is not circumcision that is a critical factor in the covenant story. It is Abraham's faith in God upon which the covenant was first created. And that came into play long before circumcision was instituted. Again, the longer version of this argument is in Romans 4. In Genesis 15, God appears in a vision to Abraham and he promises Abraham, notwithstanding the barrenness of Sarah, that he would be the father of many children. God brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars if you're able to count them. So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. And that's, that's the verse that catches Paul's attention. And he argues that it is a similar act of naked trust in God to do the impossible that is the key to Gentile inclusion in the church. It is not the circumcision of Gentiles that is critical. It is a similar act of faith in God to do the impossible that Abraham displayed. And that's what he says in our text. Just as Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness, so, you see, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. And that's why Paul says to the Galatians, you must resist the pressure to submit to circumcision and other works of the law because your connection to Abraham, your deed of belonging, if you like, depends solely on you echoing the faith that Abraham showed in God. The faith in God disclosed in the death and resurrection of Christ. You will disinherit yourself from the family of Abraham if you substitute the works of the law for your faith in Christ. So it's a really interesting kind of hermeneutical argument he's having with these, with these um, opponents. Uh, it's like they both wanted to read the same story, but they get, they get different kinds of uh, priorities out of the story. But then Paul ups the ante even further. And if anything, I hope it's come through, because it's certainly come through to me a lot this year, is just the sheer radicalism of, of Paul, just as breathtaking, really. He ups the ante even further by claiming that the law contains a kind of hidden tank trap that 
will threaten to make things much worse for the Galatians than they realise. And I'm calling this tank trap, one metaphor, calling it the dark side of the law. So Paul's rivals undoubtedly told the Gentile Galatian Christians, undoubtedly they said to the Gentiles, that Moses taught us, and it's explicitly laid out in the last chapters of Deuteronomy, Moses taught us that God's people always face a stark choice between going one of two ways. We can go the way of life, we can go the way of death. We can go the way of blessing, or we can go the way of curses. The path to life and blessing comes from Deuteronomy, I'm quoting from Deuteronomy, obeying the Lord your God by observing his commandments and decrees that are written in the book of the law. That's the path to blessing, doing what the law says. The way to death and cursing comes from failing to observe the laws and commandments of the Torah. Again, from Deuteronomy 27, cursed be anyone who does not uphold the words of the law by observing them. Again, seems crystal clear as, as uh, an interpretation of uh, especially the last chapters of Deuteronomy. So, accordingly, Gentile believers, if you want to belong to the covenant community, and if you want to escape God's judgment, then you must perform the works of the law, because that's what it says. That's the kind of covenant, terms of the covenant, if you like. And the argument makes perfect scriptural sense. Uh, and it no doubt terrified the Galatians, because curses were taken with deadly seriousness in the ancient world, and they still are in most parts of the world. Uh, some here think this curse uh, language is about the evil eye, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, the, evil eye will fall on you and, and, and bad things will happen. But once again, Paul mounts a very different kind of argument from Scripture. What he argues is that blessing comes not from the law, but from emulating Abraham's faith. So go back to Galatians 3. God said to Abraham, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you. Paul comments, for this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham who believed. So the blessing, Paul is suggesting, comes from following in the footsteps of Abraham's faith, in a sense, rather than following in the footsteps of Moses' Commandments. But even more scandalously than that, Paul claims that the curse of the law actually falls on everybody. It falls on law keepers. It doesn't just fall on law breakers, but it also falls on the seriously, seriously observant law keepers. Because, verse 10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. It's almost, it almost feels like he's saying the opposite to what, um, to what Moses appears to be saying. 
So, I mean, this is really, <laughs> this is really difficult stuff to get your head around, and there's certainly uh, no one way to understand it. And the debate amongst the experts goes on, uh, you know, with tremendous vigour uh, to this day. But here's, here's my take on it. I offer this to you as at least a partial way of, of um, making sense of this. So why is it that Paul says that if you rely on obedience to the law, you're actually under a curse? Why does he say that? When it appears that what Moses says is that you're under curse if you don't rely on the works of the law, if you actually ignore the law. I think what Paul is driving to is this. Even if somebody, even if the entire nation managed to fulfill every one of the 613 requirements conscientiously, which was possible and was thought to be possible, uh, it, it wasn't about perfection because the law provides a means of dealing with your failures. It's, it's a matter of conscientiousness. So even if the whole nation were to conscientiously attend to all 613 requirements, Paul says, even then, you would still remain fundamentally unfree from the power of sin. And that, I think, is, is, is Paul's basic argument. Even if you keep the law to the best of your ability and with the deepest devotion, don't expect that will deliver you from the power of sin. Because the law is given, Paul says, not to defeat sin, but to control or limit its damage, at least in the covenant community. To control or limit its damage in the interim until, Paul says later in chapter 3, until Christ came, so that we, we may be justified by faith. So far from overcoming sin, and you know, Paul, you almost need to put a capital letter in front of sin because he's talking about a, a cosmic power. He's not just talking about a list of bad things. The law, <coughs> far from overcoming sin, actually serves to highlight how entrenched sin really is in human experience. Universally. The law actually proves that the problem is universal. And again, if you know Romans, I mean, this is the argument of Romans 2 and 3, that Israel has not itself managed to overcome sin through its devotion to the law because the law is not capable of delivering the results that, that, uh, that is desired. Even if the law were to be fully observed, Paul would say it simply does not have the capacity to bring true freedom or to bring new life. And so later in the chapter, Matt, he asks the very question that you raise in our circle. He says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been given 
Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Certainly not. And here's the key verse. For if a law that had been given could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. If it were possible, then it would happen. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what was promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So it's almost as though Paul is saying the law was given for diagnostic purposes, not therapeutic purposes. The law was given to highlight the problem, but not to resolve the problem. So some level of blessing, to go back to this promise uh, at the end of Deuteronomy, some level of blessing may well come from attending to the commandments and living a law-defined life but not God's ultimate blessing of inner freedom and spiritual empowerment and new life. The law cannot deliver true righteousness. Righteousness in the sense of the way of life for which humanity has been created and and fallen from. The law simply cannot deliver it, either for Gentiles or even for Jews. That can only come, Paul says, from participating in Christ, whose perfect faithfulness to God has redeemed us, and the verb is about setting free, redemption is about setting free, who has redeemed us from the curse of the law. So verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham may come to the Gentiles, so that we may receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So back to the Spirit. Now those two verses are probably the most profound Uh, the most debated and most mysterious verses in a very profound debated and mysterious epistle. Um, At the risk of crass oversimplification, uh, because, you know, I'm not sure I understand it any better than you do, but perhaps Paul's thinking went something like this. Again, an offering for you to see if this can make uh, some sense of this very compressed statement about Um, being redeemed from the curse of the law and Christ bearing the curse uh, through his his crucifixion. Perhaps Paul's thinking means something like this. Jesus was condemned to death for blasphemy according to the requirements of Mosaic law. He was literally cursed to death by the prescriptions of the Torah. Blasphemy was a capital offence. The horrific manner of his death, his crucifixion by hanging on a tree, was a visible public declaration that he was believed to have been, or believed to have died under a divine curse, because there is that verse in Deuteronomy which the Jews linked with crucifixion. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
So the law's cursing power, if you like, reached its tragic zenith in condemning to death none other than God's own incarnate Son and Messiah, who was the very embodiment of righteousness. Thus proving beyond all doubt that the law, far from setting us free from sin, can actually become an instrument that extends sin's power. And in Romans 7, he he uses a military metaphor of the law being outmaneuvered by sin and falling victim to sin. So the law becomes actually a, a, a weapon in the hands of sin. Here, it's the same idea, I think. Christ absorbed this curse, this judicial curse, not because he deserved it as a transgressor, but for us, that we may be set free from the curse of the law, so that we, rather than relying on the futility of law-keeping to escape sin's enslaving and corrupting and death-dealing power, may instead receive the promise of the Spirit through faith and inherit the blessing of Abraham. Christ absorbed the cursing power of the law so that we could recognise the problem and instead um, receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, I mean, talk about gazing at a glass darkly. I mean, it's kind of... You're looking into this this profound um, reality and, and struggling to understand um, the depth of what Paul's trying to allude to we will never really fully comprehend what it means. And I, I guess there's always a risk that you make it just too palatable by, um, by doing it in ways that make more sense to us in our, in our setting. But just to conclude, it seems to me that Paul's argument in this, sort of this, this larger text that we've been reading, these 13 and 14 verses, that Paul's argument really comes down to these three assertions to the Galatians. First, everything the gospel offers in terms of present transformation and future hope, everything the gospel offers stems entirely from the work of the Spirit. It does not stem from human law-keeping. Second, God's ultimate blessing of freedom, of life, of power, of restored creation, of new community, God's ultimate blessing comes solely from faith in what Christ achieved. It doesn't come from better law-keeping. And thirdly, and this, I guess, is, a, is the, the overarching kind of um, theme in the, in the whole of, of the document that, that we've considered so far, for Paul, and this is the part I'm sure, and I circle confirms that this is the part we struggle. Why does it have to be either or? Um, for Paul, the third point he's making is that adding law keeping to the picture is not a minor neutral adjustment to keep the critics at bay or to be doubly sure that you make it across the finishing line of God's approval. For Paul, To add law-keeping to this picture 
is a graceless return to servitude. A relapse to a value system that's under the curse of judgment. And it's a rendering of the death of Christ as meaningless. That is what Paul sees to be at stake. And Paul, we were talking about this when we were driving back from Auckland, I mean, I think Paul is so uncompromising on this, and he's so unwilling to concede an inch of territory, both because I think he did not want to in any way belittle the grace of God or diminish the enormity of the cross. So I think part of his reaction, part of his passion, you know, part of his un- unwillingness to sort of um, give ground and find compromise is because he did not want to in any way divert attention from what Christ has achieved on our behalf. That's part of it. And also because he knew that one's law-keeping re-enters the arena, it will have a devastating psychological and spiritual impact on the believer's sense of self-worth and on the unity of their community. That he saw in a way that um, his opponents didn't, and the Galatians probably didn't realise, that once the idea of having to meet standards of achievement based on the law re-enters the picture of what God has done to restore creation, then they will lose at a psychological and a spiritual sense that the sense of security they could have will be lost, the sense of measuring yourself against each other, the sense of constantly trying to... to uh, find um, uh, a sense of worthwhileness. All that will re-enter the picture. Um, I was thinking there's, uh, there's a person that uh, I've invited along to these series and she's never been be able to make it, but she comes from an exclusive brethren background. And I think someone from that kind of background would, would feel this in a way that I certainly don't because I come from a very liberal background. Uh, to be in a community where you're really controlled by law, where you're really controlled by by instruction and by um, you know by do's and don'ts, I think is is crippling for people, and that's why I think Paul is so uncompromising with the Galatians on, on not wanting them to want to, to sort of go back into a, an environment, a religious environment, where those sorts of things uh, exercise power over them. So to finish with Paul's own words in chapter uh, five. He says, listen, I, Paul, am telling you that if you let yourself be circumcised, Christ will be of no benefit to you. You who want to be justified by law, the law, have cut yourself off from Christ. You have fallen from grace. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit to the yoke of slavery.